and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to investigate a real-life Victorian ghost story which took place on the Welsh coast with a rather surprising twist at the end of the tale. Also, as you might have noticed, this is episode 100 of this podcast, which is one heck of a milestone, 100 episodes of me talking absolute rubbish. But uh, joking aside, I'll be giving everyone listening a big thank you and an update on my plans for the future at the end of this episode. But before any of that, let's get the important thing out of the way first, a small matter of a spine-chilling ghost story from the Welsh coast. And so, to begin at the beginning, which in this case is the year 1887, in the city, or the town as it was back then, of Swansea, where an uncanny ghostly visitant, as the newspapers described it, was terrorising the locals. More specifically, It was terrifying the locals in and around Caswell Bay, a long golden stretch of sand on the southeast of the Gower Peninsula, the lovely, lovely Gower Peninsula. And as a result, the ghost became known, it became dubbed by the press as the Caswell Ghost. A nice imaginative name there, the Caswell Ghost. And it was spotted numerous times in the area. Now, one witness was an engineer working at the Waterworks Company in nearby Oystermouth, and he claims to have spotted the Caswell ghost on a road leading down to the beach as he walked to work late at night. So as he walked to Oystermouth after dark, he claims to have seen the ghost on the road leading to the beach, to those golden sands of Caswell. And very quickly, long-term listeners might be familiar with the name Oystermouth because back on episode 68, I spoke about the white lady said to be haunting Oystermouth Castle, but this is a totally unconnected ghost. Well, as far as I know, this is not the white lady, this is the Caswell ghost. Now, this engineer's job involved visiting the pumping engine house at all hours of night. He was up and about working when everyone else was sleeping. Although in this case, he was walking to and from work when he actually saw the ghost and he gave a description to quote, he saw a figure dressed in white gliding along the road or flitting over the sands and suddenly disappearing into the rocks which line the golden shores of that beautiful bay. So it was a figure dressed in white gliding along the road or flitting over the sands. So it was neither walking or running or doing anything that involves the usual movement of feet. It was gliding or flitting, and that culminated with disappearing into the rocks which line the golden shores of that beautiful bay. Now, it's safe to say he didn't appreciate this ghost popping up when he was walking around on his own after dark. As brave as he was, this brave engineer, nevertheless, this this thing, this ghost, whatever it was, was spooking him. And as a result, to quote again, he vowed vengeance on the ghost. 
if he ever came within striking distance of it for the many shocks he had had by its sudden appearance and disappearance on his lonely rounds of duty. So no messing around. If he came within touching distance or striking distance, as he says, of this ghost, then whack, he was going to lash out and punch it. Now, what good that may or may not do? Can you punch some ethereal, floaty apparition, whatever this ghost may or may not be? Well, maybe we'll find out later. But that was certainly his plan. He was going to strike it so that ghost had better watch out. Now, what that description does add to it as well is that he refers to the ghost as a he. This is, by the sounds of the description, this is a male ghost that he is vowing vengeance on. And to continue, as mentioned, he might be a brave engineer, but to quote, for although he was not afraid of the devil, this unsightly visitant had more than once caused his heart to bound with a quickened throb, his knees to shake, and his hair to stand on end. This big, brave engineer is more than happy to admit, in print, in the press, that the casual ghost is making him a little bit scared about walking around after dark. Now, the engineer wasn't the only witness to catch a glimpse to encounter this casual ghost. There were multiple reports of this ghost. That's why it became known as the casual ghost. There were multiple reports building up in the press. And he wasn't the only one threatening to catch it and to serve up some some punishment, some vengeance, as he described it. And things did come to a head one night, one fateful night in the nearby village of Newton in Mumbles, which is only a short walk really from Caswell Bay, as is Oystermouth. All of these locations on this episode are within walking distance in and around Mumbles. But it was in the village of Newton, one Sunday night, at around half past eight, so after the shades of night had fallen, or certainly when it was starting to get a bit dark. When, to quote a local newspaper report, a lonely widower sitting disconsolate in his ingle nook heard a knock at his door, and before he could rise and open it, the door silently opened, and the firelight's fitful gleam fell full upon a figure dressed in white with black face and arms and in a grave voice and deep enough to have issued from the tomb itself asked if it could have lodgings for the night. The man stood appalled at the sight before him. His knees smote, his tongue clave to the roof of his mouth. In silent horror, he gazed the apparition which quietly backed out of the doorway and fled. The click of the garden gate aroused the horrified man from his stupor of surprise. He started, rubbed his eyes, looked. It was gone. Like a flash it came upon him that his strange and unearthly visitor must be the Caswell ghost. So there's a lot going on there, but this poor old widower, 
sitting there alone one night, one Sunday night, by the fire, is rudely disturbed by this apparition that he takes to be the casual ghost, and it just walks in through the front door. I mean, I guess it does knock first, but it doesn't bother waiting for anyone to answer. It just lets itself in. It walks in, although, interestingly, he doesn't simply glide through the door or through a wall or something. He walks in like a human, like a living human, but... Nevertheless, he still scares the pants off the occupant, in, in, in so many words, not literally, of course. But the old man is quite shocked, quite scared by what he sees. So, what does he do next? Well, let's return to the tale. And, in the twinkling of an eye, he was out and across the road to the neighbour's house, where, in spasmodic jerks, he told what he had seen. So what does he do? He runs over to his neighbour's house and, fortified and encouraged by a draught, hastily swallowed of his neighbour's supper beer. What a time to be alive when people had supper beer. But after a quick gulp of supper beer, they both went out armed with the first weapons they could lay hold of. So just like the engineer earlier, they wanted to dish out some vengeance, but they weren't just going to, to strike him, to give him a, a pop in the face or whatever the engineer was planning to do. They had weapons. Now, it doesn't specify what these weapons were. I like to think that maybe it's like a scene from an old Frankenstein film with pitchforks and things, but certainly living on the Welsh coast in the Victorian age, I don't think it was anything too advanced or technical. They weren't going out ghost hunting with, with proton packs on, say, because, of course, we all know proton packs were invented in 1984, not in 1887. But they went out armed with weapons, and it didn't take them long to track down this ghost. They didn't need a PKE meter or anything like that, because to return to the report, outside, they heard the sounds of children screaming, the patter of feet and cries of fright, which, of course, led them onto the track his ghost ship had taken. And they weren't alone in taking this track, of course, because of all this noise, all this kerfuffle had alerted more of the neighbours. More of the good people of Newton were now on his trail. And to quote once more, as they went, they picked up an other brave man who joined those two with the weapons, and they all went on together. Three of them go in, Ghostbusting. They just, all they needed was a fourth member, and it would be the real Ghostbusters. But they turned to the left, up the village of Newton. And as they did so, they overtook an old woman. And speaking to her, said, Auntie Mary, is that you? To which she replied, yes. And they said, did you see anything pass here? And Auntie Mary said, Yes, I saw something queer. To which they said, Which way did it go? To which Aunt Mary replied, Why? Into Will Owen's house. And I love Auntie Mary's description there. Yes, I saw something a bit queer. She is the queen of the understatement. And that perfectly sums up why women are so much better at hunting ghosts than men. Or certainly in the Victorian days and certainly in, in Wales in the Victorian times. Because the men are running around like headless chickens, picking up weapons, screaming and shouting and knocking back the booze. Whereas the women, Auntie Mary, cool as a cucumber, she's almost dismissive about it. Yeah, I saw something a bit queer. It just popped in to see the farmer over there. And it's at that point we'll return to the tale. And the ghost 
not knowing that it had been followed, had, in the meantime, gone to Farmer Owen's house. Now, we know that because Auntie Mary just told us that, but the ghost has gone into Farmer Owen's house and, knocking the door, it was opened by a granddaughter who screamed and bolted. A grandson went to the door and he also saw and fled in dismay. And we are back now to the kind of normal reaction you would expect a ghost to get. Although, you know, these are children, they're much younger. But nevertheless, the granddaughter and the grandson scream, run away. They don't want anything to do with this ghost. Now, the old farmer himself then went to see what the cause of all this fuss and noise was. And the ghost spoke to him. The ghost asked for lodgings. Now, there is a pattern here, of course, if you were paying attention a few minutes ago, he did exactly the same thing when he visited the widower's house. When he knocked on the door, walked in and said, do you have somewhere I can stay for the night? He's done exactly the same thing to the old farmer. But in this case, when the farmer saw that ghost and what he was up to, to quote, the brave old man's oaken staff went up and would have descended with a sounding whack on the head of the ghost. But discretion being the better part of valour, even in a ghost, it silently backed away down the court, as the front garden was called locally, we are told. The people of Mumbles in Victorian times called their front garden their court. Maybe they still do nowadays, I don't know. If there's anyone listening in Mumbles, let me know. Do you still call your front garden your court? But anyway, back to this ghost, and once again it fled. But alas, it fled right into the group of men talking to Aunt Mary. What are the chances of that? It ran straight towards the people who were hunting it down. But to recap quickly, there's a lot going on here. The ghost pays a visit to the farmer's house, scares the grandchildren, so the farmer comes to see what's going on. The ghost appears to be repeating its same tricks of knocking on the door, walking in and asking for lodgings. But this farmer is having none of it, decides to whack it on the head with his staff made of oak. The ghost decides, no, I don't want any whack in on the head, thank you very much, so dashes off into the front garden, or court, as they used to call it in Mumbles, out into the street and straight into the path of the three men tracking him down, the three Caswell Ghostbusters, and of course, plain-talking Aunt Mary. And so, to continue, the ghost was panic-struck, seemingly by the array of arms around it. The ghost was scared of all the weapons these men were holding, which again begs the question, if this is some ethereal creature, why does it want to avoid being hit by physical objects, by whatever these weapons are? Well, maybe we're about to find out, because the ghost stood in silent perplexity while the men were also speechless from sheer wonderment and awe. Aunt Mary, however, had her wits about her. These men are useless. Aunt Mary can sort this out on her own. And Aunt Mary said, catch hold of it and see what it is. Now, this had the desired effect. And one of them cried, I'll tackle it. And he went for it. With a sidelong jump, the ghost shied off and again fled. And rushing down the road, plumped into a lot of people mostly ladies coming from church service. Now, 
you'll have to use your imagination a little bit again here, but the man tries to to effectively rugby tackle, I guess, by jumping at the ghost. And we all know how much Welsh men are supposed to love rugby, although in this case, I doubt he would have made any particularly good team because his tackle, well, his tackle was rubbish. He did not get the ghost. The ghost fled and instead plumped into a lot of people, mostly ladies, coming from church. So this whole scene again suggests this ghost is trying to avoid any kind of physical contact. It jumps out of the way of the tackle, dashes off down the road, and ends up plumping into these poor women coming out of church. It plumped into a lot of people, we are told. And plumped is a word I don't use very often. I don't think I've ever used it on this podcast before. I don't know if I'll ever use it again. So let's use it a few times now. But plumped suggests to me that there was contact between the ghost and the ladies. And unless he left them dripping in ectoplasm or something, there was some kind of physical contact between him and the people leaving church. Now, to return to the scene and that ghost plumping all of those poor ladies, and we are told that here was confusion worse confounded. Cries, screams, hysterical solos told the effect the apparition had on the weak nerves of these ladies, startled out of their wits. Some fainted while others stood rooted to the spot, spellbound with fright and terror. Others ran screaming away, and soon a crowd was collected. Every house in Newton and Nottage poured out its wondering inhabitants, which, again, the Victorians have a wonderful, wonderful way with words, but the people of Nottage are now getting mixed up in all this. Everyone from all over mumbles, by the sounds of it, is, is walking out into the street. They're all congregating to see what the fuss is all about. Now, of course, those poor ladies who were being plumped by the ghost were not the only people coming out of the church that night. After that late service, because there was also the vicar, and the vicar, we are told, walking quietly up the hill, heard all this, and looking up in the gloaming, he too saw the flying white figure, and he gave chase, his coat flapping like wings, and seeing the men running, he called out to them, catch him, catch him, but the vicar's university training gave him the advantage, and overtaking the ghost first, grasped it like a vice, and shaking it heartily, cried, Speak, who are you? And I love the idea of the vicar in, in Newton, or the vicar of Mumbles, whatever his title was, but being some kind of Batman-style vigilante running around with his cape or his coat flapping away in the wind. And the bad guys in Mumbles really have no chance, because as that description tells us, he has university training. Who needs a bat cave when you've got university training? It makes you wonder what they taught people in universities back in the late 1800s. But anyway, the vicar catches the ghost and he grasps it like a vice. And the ghost, we are told, 
tries to wriggle out of his clutch, to which the vicar says, Here, Smith, just strip his hood off and let us see who it is. And Smith, who I'm assuming is one of the three casual Ghostbusters hunting him down, I don't know which one, but Smith does as he is told, and the ghost's bonnet, a long one projecting well over his face, is readily grasped and torn away. And all looking cry, Oh my prophetic soul, which sounds like a strange thing for all of them to say simultaneously, but that's what we're told in this report. They all say, Oh my prophetic soul will wallow. A true Scooby Doo moment on the Welsh coast. The ghost is unveiled, his hood is ripped off, and the three men and the vicar gathered round. All recognise him. It was Will Warlow. And we are told that the scene which followed is beyond description. And many were ready and willing to take summary vengeance on the practical Joker. And, but for the restraining hand and words of the vicar, they would have done so. So, according to this report... The locals were ready to give Will Warlow some justice. He was within striking distance, shall we say, some vigilante vengeance, but the vicar stopped them. But this story was picked up by a few different newspapers, and in some other less detailed reports of the same case published in different newspapers, we are told the vicar did not hold back the crowd, and the Caswell ghost was given to quote a good thrashing. So this ghost, Will Warlow, may or may not have been given a good thrashing for his efforts. But either way, the intent was certainly there. If he didn't get one, the locals certainly wanted to give him one. But would Will have deserved it? Well, that depends, really. I mean, why was he running around dressed as a ghost scaring the locals? We are told that the culprit tried hard to explain why and wherefore he had done so, saying it was to amuse his children that he had donned the dress, which is a likely story. I did it to amuse my children who, as far as I can tell, are nowhere to be seen. They're probably, hopefully, they're at home tucked up in bed somewhere late at night when he's running around. But the final matter, the final word, goes to the journalist covering the case, and he writes that we are sorry that an otherwise steady and industrious man, civil and respectful in every way, should have so far forgotten himself and his neighbours as to have performed this silly trick. Which is an interesting little epilogue. It's a strange way of looking at it, but I guess it does again reflect the period. If we put this into context, the Victorians' way of explaining somebody doing this was, well, he's a normal, sensible person. Otherwise, he must have just momentarily lost his senses, and now he's back to being a good member of society. And maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. You'd think maybe for his own safety, maybe he left the local area. I don't know. It's all hypothetical. Whatever Will did next is all speculation. But what I do know, as a final interesting little finale to this tale, well, interesting to me at least, anyway, but this story I first published back in my first book of ghost stories, a book I've mentioned many a time 
on this podcast a book called Ghosts of Wales Accounts from the Victorian Archives, which was released in 2017. And when the book was published, I did a series of events to promote the book. And I popped up in a few places across Wales to talk about Victorian ghosts, a few places in England as well. Actually, I went over the Seven Bridge to places like uh, Bristol and Bath. But the first place I ever spoke about this book, about Ghosts of Wales accounts from the Victorian archives in 2017, was in Swansea. And not just in Swansea, in Mumbles. And not just in Mumbles, but in a church. And while this tale doesn't specify which church it was in Mumbles, and I'm sure at the time there were many, I do like to think that maybe that venue that I walked up the hill to to talk about Victorian ghosts was the very same church that the casual ghost had run towards and plumped into all those old ladies a century or more beforehand. All of which brings us to the end of the tale of the casual ghost. But we're not quite at the end of episode 100 yet, because I wanted to give you all a quick thank you and a quick update to mark this milestone. Now, first of all, a huge, huge thank you, Dioch and Var Jaun, to everyone who has joined me for the ride, whether you're a hardcore listener who's been with me since episode one, or whether this is your first episode, you've just stumbled across the podcast and you've listened this far, which is good going. Thank you all for your support. And I know it's a cliche and I know everyone says it, but in this case, it's true. There is no way I would still be doing this podcast if it wasn't for everyone listening. It is thanks to you. It's your fault. You could say it's your fault. I'm still doing this because when I started, I I didn't really expect to even get double figures, never mind into the hundreds, never mind into the thousands of listeners, because let's be honest, this is a very, very niche subject. And it blows my brain that so many people over the world are tuning in each episode. So thank you, thank you, thank you, dioch, 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 for sticking with me and forcing me to record more episodes. Now, look into the future. And for episode 100, I did have some big, ridiculous plans. I wanted to do something suitably over the top like I like I tend to do at Halloween. I was thinking of maybe an event or bonus episodes or something like that. But for lots of boring personal reasons, I won't go into in too much detail, but things like book deadlines and dissertations and, and paying bills and all that sort of boring real life stuff. This year has been a really, really tough year for me to juggle all of my commitments. That is why I had to reduce this podcast to once a fortnight. I would love to get it back to once a week. I actually had the entire year planned out, but sadly, not enough time to actually get them all recorded. Now, the good news look into the future is that some of those deadlines, some of those things which have taken up all of my time are coming to an end. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Now, October is going to be a great month for me because some of these deadlines and things are coming to an end and the new ones won't have started. So I'm going to have a few weeks with some spare time. And while I would love to spend all of that recording podcasts, I'll probably spend at least a week of it relaxing and drinking wine. And it's Halloween time, so I'll be on a ghost train somewhere. I'll be drinking wine on a ghost train somewhere, which probably isn't allowed. But if it's allowed, I'll be doing that. If anyone knows of a fun fair anywhere in the world where you can drink, 
drink wine on a ghost train, let me know, and that's what I'll be doing. But as of October, I will have some extra time. I'm planning some special things for Halloween. Now, back in the days before the pandemic, I used to arrange an annual get-together called Ghosts of Wales Live, and I would love to revive something like that if I can in time this year. And also, regular listeners might remember that Halloween last year, I did record some episodes on ghost hunts and ghost tours. They were episodes 74, 75, 76. And I would love to do something like that again this year. And it would be great if there were some opportunities for the public to join in as well. And by the public, of course, I mean you lovely listeners. So there might be opportunities to join in, but that is all hypothetical right now. Don't hold me to anything. But if you are interested, watch this space or keep an eye on my social media channels or just drop me a message to say hello and I will keep you updated with any news as and when I get it. And of course, talking about social media, it's always lovely when people get in touch. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. And if you have any thoughts at all about the last hundred episodes, if you have any favorite episodes, it's always good to know what people like so I can do more of the same. If you have any suggestions for anything different, if you just want to say hello, thank you for those wonderful episodes or damn you for those terrible episodes, whatever you want to say, just get in touch. Maybe you even know where there's a ghost train where I can drink wine on board and then you'll be my favorite person ever. But whatever it is, get in touch. I'll do my best best to take all these ideas and suggestions things on board for the next for the next hundred episodes and hopefully hopefully by episode 200 i'll be slightly less busy than i am now we could all be living on mars by then who knows what's going to happen during the next hundred episodes but i hope you stick it out with me i hope you enjoy the next hundred and the hundred after that and as mentioned i do have some plans and i hope it all comes together in october and then looking to the future while i don't want to spoil anything and give away any surprises let's just say if i was going to give you a teaser of one project in one word that word would be video and on that note finally as always if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes and you haven't already please consider hitting the subscribe button and you will never miss an episode ever. And if you'd like to support the podcast and keep it going for another 100 episodes, you can treat me to a coffee via my website. Or if you'd like to support the podcast for free, which I know is the best way, you can always just leave a nice review, give it a quick thumbs up, five stars, tell all your friends about it, shout it from the rooftops, etc, etc, blah, blah, blah. And on that note, it just leaves me to say, for the 100th time, thank you very much for listening. Dioch! And Varian Amrando. I've been Mark Reese. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. And remember, if there's something strange in your neighbourhood, who are you going to call? Well, ideally, Aunt Mary. But failing that, maybe the local vicar if he doubles up as a Batman-style vigilante. Until next time, no star. <laughs> <laughs>